And welcome to the Plant a Trillion Tree podcast. I'm Eva Monheim. And I'm Hal Rosner. We're both certified arborists, credentialed by the International Society of Arboriculture. The purpose of our podcast is to encourage tree planting and proper tree care for our urban forest, which includes neighborhoods, parks, and other open space. We'll also cover the importance of the already existing tree cover and the benefits. So welcome, everybody. Thanks for joining us. This podcast is being recorded on March 11th, 2022. Dan Herms is Vice President of Research and Development for the Davy Tree Expert Company. Prior to joining Davy, Herms served on the faculty in the Department of Entomology at The Ohio State University from 1997 to 2017, serving as department chair from 2012 to 2016. His research and outreach programs focus on the ecology and management of trees in forests, urban forests, and ornamental landscapes, including interactions with insects, soils, and climate. Welcome to the Planet Trillion Trees podcast. Dan, we're delighted you could be with us today. Well, it's a real pleasure to be with you too, so thank you. How did you wind up where you are today in the green industry? What was it like early on before you got to who you are? Well, it's a fairly direct route. I started out in in pre-med, but, you know, that didn't really grab me. Our family had a greenhouse business and flower store, and so I worked there in high school and so forth. And I just, uh, over time, became more interested, eventually changed my major to horticulture, got a horticulture degree from Ohio State, became interested in pest management, got graduate degrees in entomology, went to work for a public botanical garden, then became a professor of shade tree and forest entomology at Ohio State University. And from there, four years ago, came over to the Davy Tree Expert Company as vice president of research and development. So you were actually born into the industry. I was. Yep. It was a four-generation business. So grandfather, great-grandfather, great-uncle, uncle, great-great-aunt, all part of the Herms Floral Company. And that's a very uh, long line. And I used to have a flower shop myself, so... I know how important it was to have good lineage. Oh, I can still remember the smell of the cut flowers when I go in after school to sweep up all the leaves off of the floor and and then delivering flowers. You know, there's nothing better than, you know, you show up on somebody's front porch and you have flowers and you don't ask them for any money. Here you are. Here's the gift. (laughs) Here are your flowers. You know, the, the downside is when Oh, can you hang on to these for the next door neighbor? They're not home. (laughs) That is the downside. Well, Dan, I think our time is going to go quick because anytime we have a arborist researcher on to talk about the issues of the tree care industry and the climate catastrophe, it very quickly becomes a pretty intense conversation. And it's what brought Eva and I together. I mean, the Planet Trillion Trees podcast is a play on some of the research coming out of the Scandinavian countries. Planet Trillion Trees, that's our number second or third strategy after backing it down on fossil fuels. And hey, you know, maybe we're going to save ourselves. 
and it's such a big question, but in a macro kind of way, can you talk about some of your research and how you're looking at trees and where we're going with all this as a, as a species? Yes, it is a big question. And at the Davy Tree Company, we're, you know, we're studying the issue from several different angles. Of course, we're looking at, you know, the impacts of climate change on our operations. And for example, how, they affect, how climate change is affecting tree health, pest problems, uh, interactions with water, drought, um, intense storms, storm damages. But we also look at the benefits of trees and for climate adaptation and for climate resilience. For instance, you know, we have, uh, we, we developed software that can quantify these benefits, the iTree software in collaboration with the Forest Service and Arbor Day Foundation to uh, quantify carbon capture, impacts on reducing heat island effect, reducing stormwater runoff. You know, these are all kind of effects of climate change that trees can help mitigate. And so, you know, we're looking at these trees as tools for adapting to climate change and increasing climate resilience. And of course, that's a fundamental motivation of the Trillion Tree Initiative. And I have to commend you and your company because I, I do, every time I read about Davy, I'm thinking, oh yeah, they get it. They're moving forward with the issues that face us as an industry. The little tagline I throw around all the time is that arborists are at the front line of the climate catastrophe, but most of us don't know that. We're running the stump grinder or we're pruning out dead limbs or we're excavating the root collar of a Japanese maple. But at the same time, we're involved in an industry that has to pay attention to its own carbon footprint. Indeed. At Davy, we, we take that seriously. You know, we're looking at our fleet. We're transitioning to hybrid and electric vehicles. And we will be, you know, as, as electric trucks become more available in the future, we're definitely headed in that direction. We're transitioning to electric power equipment. So sustainability you know, we're trying to walk the talk. And so, you know, not only do we, I mean, we take pride in our skill in preserving and maintaining the health of large trees, which are so important for these ecosystem services like carbon capture and sequestration and so forth. Uh, we also play a, a critical role in responding to the consequences of climate change, such as intense storms and hurricanes and the damages that they do to trees. And so, you know, our work is critical to helping the utility companies restore the power. We have to get the trees off of the lines so that they can get the power running. So we're, we're involved in climate change from, you know, every perspective. For a long time, I felt like this carbon footprint issue for tree care industry isn't going to go away. But then I realized when I buy a plane ticket these days, the airlines are now saying, hey, how about we plant a few trees for the purchase you just made? The head-scratching moment, and I, I was with uh, Bartlett Tree Experts for 15 years, so I understand, you know, it's a business and it's a lot of equipment and a lot of labor. But another piece that got Eva and I together is Dr. Michael Durst challenge to the industry. Hit your wagons to the climate crisis because it's not going away. And I just think there is a simple solution right under our noses for arborists is that we plant more trees, you know, that we have a dedicated tree planting crew. And I'm not asking all of us to go out and plant three inch diameter trees and buy special equipment, but to engage the homeowner in that 
you know, if you will, canopy restoration or tree restoration on their own property, especially if they've lost a half a dozen mature trees to a weather-related event. Tree planting is really important, you know, and, and Davey addresses that from different perspectives. We have a landscaping division of our company that is, you know, heavily involved in tree planting and landscaping residential commercial properties. We have a large nursery that we produce trees. We do a lot of promotional work with around tree planting projects. So for example, we, we have a program called Trees for Threes with a partnership with the Cleveland Cavaliers. Every time a Cleveland Cavalier basketball player makes a three-point shot, we commit to planting a tree in Cleveland. That's fabulous. Yeah, and they've been making a lot of three-point shots. And so, and, and we're looking at climate-facing trees in terms of the selection that we're using. We want to plant trees that work now, but will also work in the kind of climate that we're projecting to experience 30, 40 years from now. Trees live a long time. The tree we plant now is going to have to adapt to the environment that it's going to face, you know, when it's an adolescent and an adult and a senior citizen like me. I want to ask you, does Davey do um, a lot of outreach with children? I know other companies do, and I'm wondering if you take your, your shtick into the school systems and education. Now, that's a, a good question. I know we do, we do outreach programs. We do climbing demonstrations. We do support the curriculum. For example, there's a high school right next door has an arboriculture program, and we've supported it to a large degree over the years. And, and we have some, a number of excellent employees that graduated from that high school program. To be honest with you, I don't know everything that we're doing in the elementary school space. Right. You can't, you can't know everything. And I have to commend your company and companies like yours that are making the effort to go carbon neutral with your, with your equipment and your vehicles. And I know it's going to take a while to get there, but you're making the effort now. And the impact and the model that you're creating for others is important because, you know, when big companies do something that dramatic, other companies typically follow. And I think that that's really commendable for, from, from my perspective, at least. I wonder, want to find out a little bit more about the arboriculture industry as a whole. How does your company influence others in doing the right thing when it comes to how you properly care for a tree and, and prune and maintain? Well, we are a very large company. We're the, the largest full-service tree care company, I think, in the world. And certainly in the United States, we operate in almost every state. We have a research division that I head up. We have training programs. We have high visibility in the industry. So we speak at educational programs, talk about our, our research results. Other companies, Bartlett does, you know, has the same kind of programs and impact. So we try to be outward facing in terms of you know, transferring our information. We try to set good examples and, you know, we want to be a, a leader in, in the field and we think we are a leader in the field. I was interested, actually one of my favorite topics, Dan, is just if you want to talk about some of the, what your research is pointing you towards in terms of trees that are, you know, showing some tenacity and resilience, heat, drought, pest, uh, everything that a, an amenity tree is up against. What are some of the things that you're finding? 
And you, feel free to name species too. Well, the way I think about trees, climate-facing trees, trees for future climates, is without getting too technical, I think about what they call the climate envelope for a tree. And the climate envelope are those climatic factors that are important in determining where trees grow naturally. And the two primary variables there are temperature, so temperature extremes and average temperatures in the summer and winter, and the amount of precipitation. And so some trees are adapted to hotter, drier climates, and some trees are adapted to uh, more mild and, and wetter climates. And so we look at, you know, kind of what the climate envelope for our region is now, and then what is it projected to be in the future? And in general, things are gonna shift north. And so we look at trees that are doing well now, right here, but also extend farther to the south. So for example, Ohio, the climate of Ohio, depending on how the trajectory of emissions, carbon emissions go in the future, that's the biggest wild card as to how much warming we're gonna get is whether we can slow emissions and what, to what degree. But the climate of Ohio is going to become projected to become more like that of North Carolina by the mid-century, late century, northern Alabama, that kind of thing. And so, you know, you can look at trees that grow here now, but are also that also grow in, in those areas. And so things like red oak, it's a big distribution across the eastern United States. It's going to do well in Ohio for a long time. White oak. Burrow, which also has good drought tolerance. And so for drier areas, warmer areas, that'll be a, a good species. Red maple, bald cypress. Bald cypress is not native to Northeast Ohio, but we know it's native to the, to the Southeast. We know from experience that it grows well in Northeast Ohio. You know, they're planted here. I used to work at Arboretum in Central Michigan. They grew well there. So this is a tree that's adapted to the Southeast it will do well in this climate for a long time to come. So those are the kind of things, dogwoods, redbuds, hickory, you know, the trees that we want to probably avoid planting are those trees that are kind of on the southern limit of their distribution. Trees like paper birch, mm -hmm. quaking aspen, most of the conifers, the spruces, you know, there are pine trees that will do well here in the future, but the spruce trees, the aspens, you know, these kind of more northern trees, sugar maple as a kind of a tenuous future in Ohio, avoid those kind of trees and, and look at the, you know, the trees that are doing well in the area that we expect our climate to, to become like. And are you also looking at those trees because they will be less likely to need intensive labor? I know that when a tree gets to be at that critical edge, a lot of times it needs more pampering and it needs a little bit more cajoling uh, to keep it going. And there's going to be a lot more trees that we're going to have to maintain and take care of if we continue to plant. So I would think that you're looking at, at trees that are, that are going to need less care as time goes on. Well, you know, in general, the better adapted the tree is to the, the climate, the, the less care it will take. But it becomes more complicated than that because, you know, you have the, the larger kind of the climatic variables, but then within that you have more localized kind of variables you have to deal with. So you have the urban environment, 
versus parks. Uh, you have disturbed soil versus, you know, relatively undisturbed soil. You have different kinds of pH. You have different, different moisture availability precipitation. So, you know, once you identify the large subset of trees that will tolerate, you know, the climate, then you have to go to that and pick the smaller subset of trees that will be appropriate for that site. And so the old adage, right plant, right site. Yes, and microclimate plays a huge role. Reflective heat and surfaces, different types of surfaces make a huge difference too. Yes. And how much porosity is in around them, if, especially if they're in an urban area, can they get the adequate water that they need uh, through permeable pavement, for example, or something? If, yeah, you know, structural soils, permeable structural pavements, soils. you know, those, those kind of things, those kind of technologies will be important adaptations for you know, maintaining tree health in, in the urban environment. You know, I saw a fascinating presentation yesterday at a sustainability conference at the Cincinnati Zoo by a professor, a cardiologist professor, University of, of Louisville. They're doing research on how planting trees helps maintain heart health in urban environments by um, intercepting air pollutants, for example. And they're, so they're doing some large-scale experiments in Louisville where they're planting green screens between highways and schools, for example, measuring the pollution that's being intercepted, measuring certain physiological variables of the people on either side. And so they're, they're looking at the mechanistic basis for these observations that green space enhances human health and wellness. It was really fascinating. I love to hear those stories. And I also have a sense that other learning institutions, medical institutions in other cities are also pursuing similar lines of research. But it, it takes me back to that what we're challenged with is our cities are becoming hotter. You know, the technology shows us that all the time. So we really have to and I'm, of course, I'm thinking of Philadelphia, but I'm sure, you know, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Louisville, we're all up against the same challenges of figuring out ways to get trees in at a reasonable price, keep them low maintenance, trees that are adaptable to hot and dry and pest outbreaks. And by the way, don't ruin the sewers and lift the sidewalks. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of competing and sometimes conflicting uh, considerations yeah. when you're trying to uh, afforest the urban environment. Right. When you were talking about having a doctor there, I kind of remember years ago, when, you know, 40 years ago, looking back when I first started in horticulture, and things were pretty much siloed. You didn't really uh, cross disciplines, but now it seems like there are many more disciplines that are interconnecting with horticulture and what we do in the science world because it's affecting them or whatever they're working on, whether it be infrastructure, for example, or whether it's, you know, how much water is going to go through the uh, pipe after a storm, storm flow uh, versus, you know, how many trees can we use to reduce that storm flow? Those are all kind of things that people didn't talk about years ago. Um, they just didn't. And now we're seeing other sciences cross over. So can you tell us any other sciences that you feel 
strong of being strongly affected by what we're doing in our in our profession? Yeah, this is just a really exciting trend that you're talking about in this interdisciplinary connection and linkages. And so while there's a long overdue increased collaboration between landscape architects and horticulturists and urban foresters, but um, urban forestry, you know, urban forests as green infrastructure are increasingly appreciated by municipal managers and so forth. And so there's there's much more integration and synthesis and cooperation with engineers, civic engineers, you know, that you talked about the stormwater runoff. That's such an important issue. And, you know, the EPA recognizes the importance of trees in mitigating stormwater and that that's gotten the attention of city planners and engineers. We briefly mentioned things like structural soils. So how to engineer soils in the urban environment for trees. And so that's a collaboration between you know, engineers, architectures and green buildings and, you know, where to put windows. So we're, you know, we're in the process of building a new research campus here in Kent, right across the street from our corporate headquarters. We purchased a golf course that closed. We're repurposing it into a research and training facility. And so, you know, we're going to build sustainable buildings. And we've been working with engineers and architects and they think about, you know, where to put the windows in terms of the the arc of the sun over the course of the day and where the trees should go. And our iTree program has a a software module called iTree MyTree. If you Google iTree, which, you know, is is a a tool for quantifying the benefits of trees, look at the module MyTree and it can help you plan where to plant trees in your yard to maximize the benefits. So you can play what if scenarios. So what if I plant a red maple off of the northeast corner of the yard? You know, so it's kind of integrated with Google Earth. You can look right at your property, put a tree in, and it will tell you over time, you know, what kind of benefits you'll get if you plant it there, plant it here. And so, yeah, there are a lot of uh, interesting collaborations across disciplines that are emerging. Trees and crime, you know, that's another trees and sociology. Yeah, trees and mental health. Trees and mental health. Trees and recovery. This this doctor, doctor, his name is Dr. Botnager. B-H-A-T-N-A-G-A-R. University of, of Louisville. He was talking about a study. They did a study where patients come out of surgery and they go into a room and one room has a window that looks out to a brick wall and another room has a window that looks out to a a green space and the people in the room with the green space window need less pain killers and they their hospital stays were shorter yeah, that was uh, that's early research done by Dr. Ulrich years ago. Okay, and uh, and they're doing they're replicating it again. I think because some of the hospitals have windows now, where some of them didn't have windows, and they realize how important those windows are, looking out on green spaces, and also having the place where people can go after surgery to be wheeled through so that they're feeling uh, better. And one of my former colleagues at the university, he was designing hospital gardens for uh, recovery. And it's an amazing study and how important it is 
and what we don't realize until we have the figures, the facts and figures there uh, for proof. We're doing research, you know, as another example with the Internet of Things. And so, you know, remote sensors where we can monitor the environment of a particular tree, for example, soil sensor that's, uh, you know, has a cellular connection. And we can put that in the ground when the tree is planted and then monitor the soil moisture and have a, a more specific watering regime. Water when the tree needs it, not on a schedule, not when it's raining. And, you know, see if you can enhance tree establishment in the urban environment without overwatering. And so in temperature sensors where we can get data back from individual landscapes that provide degree day information so that we can predict when a pest is becoming active. You know, in Northeast Ohio, right along Lake Erie, the climate can be quite different than 15, 20 miles inland. And so this, the same office might be handling, you know, clients in both of those areas. So knowing when the pests are active and so forth. So that, you know, that's another area where we have had some projects with Microsoft, for example. Well, a lot of people don't realize how being close to a water body, how that affects everything, at least up until like 50 miles inland or a little bit further, depending on how large the body of water is. And everything, including whether it's something salt tolerant or whether it's whether it can be more pollution tolerant because the waters are polluted. I mean, there's a whole host of things that you have to really think about when you're planting uh, goes back to some of the early 1700 plantings of, of trees here in the United States when they were building the first farms. There was a strategic strategy of how to place your home so that it was uh, north-south facing, so that you had the least amount of house facing the north wind and the southern sun. And having, you know, because our prevailing winds coming from the west, you'd have your widest portion from the west and to the east. And uh, a lot of people don't know this. These They followed how the Indian or the Indians, I should say, indigenous people had their longhouses. That was all part of the strategy and understanding weather conditions. We kind of moved away from that, and now we're moving back to that. And that's where you come in because you're you're bringing all this back to uh, remind everyone that we need to be conscious of that. And I think that that's really an important part of education to your clients and education to the industry. Absolutely. So I think I think you're absolutely right. We've lost track of our connection with the natural world. And I think, um, you know, regaining that appreciation for the rhythm of the seasons and, and you know, the, the environment that we live in and how to, you know, use that to our best advantages. Absolutely. Well, I finished a, a graphic novel on uh, John Chapman, Johnny Appleseed, and now I'm halfway through a biography. But, man, he, uh, he should be our uh, figurehead as we move forward, because especially for you guys in Ohio, he really was early on to integrating with nature and integrating with first peoples and moving seeds around the countryside and, and things like that. We, we all need to bring out our inner John Chapman. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, literary, literary and natural history icons like Aldo Leopold, for example. And yeah. You know, Henry David Thoreau and Wendell Berry. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, speaking of Leopold and, and Thoreau and 
and bringing it back to climate change, both of them made very detailed measures of, of phenology, the study of life cycles, and documented those in great, great detail, plant emergence, flowering, insect emergence, and so forth. And those data have been revisited in recent years and found that things are happening, you know, substantially earlier in the spring than they were at that time. So with these phenological records providing documentation of just how much the climate has changed. I was approached because I teach woody plants and uh, approached for a science survey. And that science survey was they found that woody plant teachers see that the most were the frontline people. We see, you know, I would observe, oh, the pawpaws are in bloom now and the fruits are coming on. They usually drop like around the first and second week of September. Well, they're dropping in August now and they don't stop dropping until December. That's not normal. No. It's usually a two-week period. You know, what's affecting that? And and then following up the following year and see what's happening then. And these close um, uh, observations over a number of years, a decade or more, at least when, I, when I, I've been teaching uh, at the one place, I noticed that there was a two-week difference in bloom time on, on most of the plants after a 10-year period. And so you look at that and you say to yourself, you know that there's change happening. Um, does anybody else notice? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, tree people do. Pe tree yes. people do because you're working up in the trees and you're saying to yourself, you know what, these trees are too early this year. They're, this is not normal. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah, you're right. I, I, A lot of people don't notice it, but tree people do. And I've been monitoring blooming times of trees, you know, with great intensity since the 1980s and have published on that before I was even thinking about climate change. But, you know, I can go back and look and see clearly the differences. And, you know, and I, I know from a kid, like where, where we used to ice skate, the length of the winters and so forth have changed very dramatically. But, you know, a lot of people don't. And it, it takes a few years. You know, you're not going to notice this until you start getting a little bit of age, you know, get back a few decades. But um, that's very true. And our indigenous people were very keen on that, too, because, you know, a lot of the plants were the common names came from different time periods when they were in bloom. Oh, yeah. Serviceberry, Juneberry, yeah, all related to phenology. And so, you know, I like to phenology has been called the, the world's oldest science. And I, I've studied phenology for years. I like to call it the foundational science of human existence. I mean, humans mm -hmm. have been obsessed with phenology because of hunting, gathering, planting, harvesting, you know, and then you look at some of these structures that humans have built through the millennia, Stonehenge or in Ohio, the Native American earthenworks at Serpent Mound and at Fort Ancient have all, they're all calendars, so they clock the seasons, and you know their their very existence depended on being connected to nature. To going back to the, you know, the point we were talking about and orienting our structures, um, food, shelter, protection from hazards. You know, those those are the three fundamental needs, right, of any organism. And I just want to jump back a little bit, Dan, um, with the trees that you're growing for assessing and, and your field research, do you have the luxury of collecting seed or are you 
buying it from collectors or are you working with, uh, you know, rooted cuttings doing your own propagate? I guess, how are you propagating? Yeah, we are not propagating or breeding. So that this is an area where we would collaborate yeah. with. And so, for example, yesterday, again, at this symposium I was at, there was a um, woman from J. Frank Schmidt Nursery in Oregon, one of the biggest tree nurseries that I'm sure you're aware of. And uh, Nancy Dooley, she was talking about that, the work that they do in that regard. Yes. They collect the seeds, they do breeding, they do hybridization, they're increasing the diversity. So, you know, that that's outside of our realm and outside of our expertise. And so it requires collaboration across these various disciplines and and they're working very hard to increase the diversity of tree species cultivars that would be suitable and, and she mentioned that climate change is one of the really important criteria that they're focused on now yeah i actually we had her on we had her on our podcast early on isn't she wonderful she is, I know her through the Garden Communicators Organization. She's an amazing lady. And she works with so many different disciplines. Yes. Like she works with the landscape architects and the landscape designers. And she works with tree people like yourself and so on. So she's got her, her heart is like constantly uh, connecting. Oh, she's you know? such an ambassador. She's a giant in the, in the field and, and yes. uh, she's so enthusiastic um, yeah. and passionate about out their work. Schmitz put a handout together. I, I think this is when we had her on the podcast, but they maintain a list. And anytime I'm feeling existential angst, I look at the Schmitz list of uh, uh, species for a changing climate. And there's so many cool species here. Things I can tell that they're working very hard to uh, patent, but that are showing up already with a good track record in, in terms of stress tolerance. You know, things like white shield Osage orange, Turkish hazel, hardy rubber tree, prairie sentinel hackberry. I mean, there's about four dozen cultivars here. So that that is pretty exciting. Now, just educate me here, Dan. Would Davy be able to make a purchase from Schmitz? Would you be able to buy like liner stock for your own work? Yes, indeed. In fact, you know we do. We buy we buy trees from Schmidt. We buy trees from other wholesale nurseries. Okay. Right, you know, we our nursery. We have a large field nursery in Northeast Ohio. They don't propagate trees, so they buy liners. Right plant them out and we grow them on and we try to specialize in large trees so that, you know, we kind of have a, a, a niche market for growing and, and transplanting large field grown nursery stock. Okay. And then for our research plots, you know, we buy liners and bare root nursery stock, more bare root nursery stock than liners. A little so bit bigger then. Yeah. Get a little bit bigger and get right. things start a little bit faster. Yeah. We have, we're talking about doom and gloom, but I know that there's a lot of positive stuff that we've already touched on, and there, there's some positive research that you're working on. And can you talk to us a little bit about the woolly adelgid situation and the productivity of Northeast forests? I didn't think there were hemlocks left for woolly adelgid. Yeah, well, with climate change, you know, there's, there's winners and losers as the climate changes. Yeah. 
becomes less suitable for some organisms, but well said. becomes more suitable for others. Yeah. And the right. hemlock woolly adelgid is an interesting example. It's not research that I did. It's research that was done at the University of Georgia by Angela Meck, who is now a forest entomologist at University of Maine. When she did this work, when she was a PhD student at University of Georgia, and her advisor, Dr. Kamal Gandhi, and Dr. Gandhi was a she was a postdoc in my lab before she became a professor at University of Georgia. So I kind of have this vicarious uh, lineage connection to this this research. Like the you're rooted together. You're all rooted, rooted together. together. But what they noticed was very interesting. And, and hemlock woolly adelgid is an invasive insect that's just de devastated hemlocks in the eastern United States and the Appalachian range in, in particular. And they noticed that in, in northern Georgia, in the high altitudes in the mountains of northern Georgia, the hemlocks were being devastated. But at the lower altitudes, the hemlocks were surviving very well, and the insect populations were very low. And what they found is that it was the hot temperatures and the low altitudes, the heat stress, was killing the insects. And they did a lot of sophisticated experiments and so forth. But the trees were able to tolerate those temperatures in the 90 degrees. Those, you get extended temperatures in the 90 degrees, it kills hemlock woolly adelgid. And so these high temperatures are providing thermal protection to the trees. But in the cooler temperatures, uh, the, the insects were winning and the trees were, were being killed. And then, you know, at some point it gets too cold for the insects and the trees get protection again. So at the northern range of the distribution, but as the climate's warming, that, you know, kind of that cold refuge is, is shifting farther north. But climate change is not always good for insects. They can be stressed by the heat. In northeastern United States, you know, forest productivity has been increasing and due in part to the longer growing season, the increased precipitation, increased concentration of carbon di dioxide in the atmosphere, these all favor tree growth. And so, you know, some trees in the very Northeast that are not heat tolerant are, are getting stressed. Things like the spruce forests are predicted to you know, be eliminated from the Northern United States and, and migrate farther North, they don't actually migrate. They don't get up and walk away. They just die off at the southern edge and, and grow at the northern edge. But maple forests, oak forests are really predicted to, to be favored and in, increase their productivity in, in the Northeast. So there's, you know, winners and losers. And the key is to focus on the winners and, you know, put your, put your effort there. Yeah. At the front line of the climate crisis. Yeah. So... We have to ask you our favorite question because we're winding down here. What is your favorite tree or group of trees that um, that you find a connection with? You know, yeah. maybe you've even talked to one, and that's okay. Yeah. Yeah, I, I have. <laughs> so that's an easy question. I have kind of two favorite trees. So um, probably my very favorite tree is, is paper birch white bark birch, Betula papyrifera. When I was a child, we lived in Wisconsin and, you know, we would go up north and that was kind of a symbol of the North Woods. I worked in Michigan 
at the Dow Gardens in Midland and, you know, Birch native in the forest. I did my PhD research on Birch. I've counted the number of leaves on Birch trees. Birch trees that are, say, eight inches in diameter can have 32,000 leaves. I counted every single one of them. Wow. I know everything about the sex life of birch trees. They're, they're just beautiful. I love the symbol of the, the north. We've studied their, their reproduction, their defense against insects, their ecology. My other favorite tree is serviceberry, amelanchier. And so we've planted a bunch of those in our yard. And I love the flowers in the spring, the fall color, the fruits, you know, the birds. We garden for butterflies and birds. And, and serviceberry is just, um, you know, my wife and I, both um, were attracted to those before we were married and they've kind of have a special symbol in our, in our life together. And we plant, we've planted, I don't know, six or eight, you know, large clump service berries in our, we have a several acre lot. Every year we plant some in the understory to get, you know, this, this kind of white flower in the, in the, in the spring and the understory before the trees leaf out. So those are my two favorites. Very cool. I can't help but ask any continued bright spots with that paper bark birch because here in the Delaware Valley, you know, I know probably a half a dozen and they're all in these bizarre microclimates like in someone's backyard, but getting two and a half hours of sun, but, you know, a, mo- a root system that stays consistently moist. You know, in yeah. other words, we're having a lot of trouble with them here. Yeah. You know, we've lost, we've lost majority, 40 years ago, we had tons of them around here. We don't have them anymore. Yeah. 40 years ago, a lot of the birch trees that were planted were non-native birches. Um, the European white birch, for example, Betula pendula dominated the nursery industry yeah. and it's very susceptible to bronze birch borer, which is a native insect. And it just wipes out the European white birch. Bronze birch borer is very closely related to emerald ash borer, same genus. Mm. And so the way that emerald ash borer has decimated um, the North American ashes, of course, emerald ash borer is a non-native insect. The native ash trees don't have any natural defense against emerald ash borer. And the same is true of the European and Asian birch trees have no natural defense against bronze birch borer. But the North American birch trees that have evolved with bronze birch borer have a high level of defense, and they only become susceptible when they become severely stressed, and they have to become severely stressed. But that's happening with greater frequency. Birch is not heat tolerant. It's not drought tolerant. And so you do have to pay attention to to the site. We can still grow well in Ohio, but they need to be in, in a good soil. Yeah. And um, once they're established, they don't need a lot of irrigation with the precipitation we've been getting. But birch is a tree that is predicted to be, you know, one of the first that's negatively impacted by a warming climate. Yeah. Yeah, we used to, we used to see them in the old fields um, as a successional tree growing in our community. And, and then you started to see them wane because, yeah. of, because of the heat. But those are great picks. Yeah, they are. We're really, we're really thrilled that you could have been on our show today and and talk to us and give us and our listeners um, the opportunity to hear what you're doing at Davy, and uh, so critical for everyone's benefit. Well, thank you very much. It's it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and 
you know, share our passion about trees and the challenges that, that we're confronting. So thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dan. All yep. right. Thanks, Sal. Thanks. <laughs> thanks, Eva. Yep. Yeah. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. So long. The Planet Trillion Trees podcast is edited by Andromedan Recordings in Hollywood, California. Thank you.